I always get the very best out of actors. They're always magnificent, when, including Kinski, by the way, who did 205 shitty films. <laughs> but in, in, in my films, he's really magnificent. Um, and uh, Cage, Cage really trusted me. And, and sometimes, I, I give you one hint, uh, he said to me on the second day of shooting, Werner, you know, um, I hate to ask this because I know you, you cannot stand debating the character development of, of, of your figures in, in on screen. Uh, you cannot stand this endless uh, debates about motivation. Yes, it's true, I cannot stand it. And um, he said to me, but one quick question, maybe you have some sort of a quick answer. Why is a bad lieutenant so bad? Is it the, is it the drugs? Is it uh, Hurricane Katrina? Is it the corruption of... Uh, the police force, is it his uh, messed up family life? And, and I said to him, uh, don't enumerate anything more, let's stop it right here. And I said to him, Nicholas, you know, there's such a thing like the bliss of evil. Go for it. Welcome to Not A Bomb Podcast, where we discuss the benign nature of films who went through sheer hell only to find no love and the horrible screams of silence at the box office. Nothing has shaken me to my core like the caked debris haunting the small plastic soap hammock in Bavarian bathrooms. And of course, the film we are discussing today, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call New Orleans, which is a horrible title for any film. I am one of your hosts, Troy, and with me is the equally depressing Brad. I feel obligated to ask this, but Brad, how are you doing this evening? I don't know what's going on. I had this real serious uh, sort of monologue planned about how, you know, this is this podcast is the greatest escapism from the real world. And then you hit me with some, your Bernard Herzog impression, I'm guessing is what that is. And now I'm all thrown off. So I'm, I'm doing great, Troy. Uh, thank you for my birthday gift, by the way. I just wanted to say on the air. Um, yeah. Happy birthday, and, man. Yeah, you had a birthday. Yeah. Our good friend John had a birthday last week, but I yeah. mean, we're talking Werner, uh, Werner, Werner, however. Werner. Werner German Herzog. W's or V's. That's right. So I thought we needed to set the mood for something like existential you, and depressing. You and, you know, we're, we're talking about movies that bombed here, right? That, that's the whole premise of the show. So tonight's certainly bombed, and it gives us to, a chance to talk about the, um, I, I don't, I, there's not a word to describe the director of tonight's film. Um, th Old? This should be a bold, <laughs> yeah, eccentric. Th this should be. A really good episode but Brad before we get into anything we have a public correction to do based on last week's episode no, no we don't Troy we don't get anything wrong we, we never we, get anything wrong we definitely get some <laughs> stuff wrong so last uh, episode episode 30 which was my pick and we talked about 1988's The Beast we we talked about a lot of stuff 
Um, and full, full disclosure, we tried to do a ton of research on all of the topics that we brought up um, during that film. But one thing stood out. Well, sometimes you like look at the big picture and you forget to look at like the small details. So yes. go ahead. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Good point. So we, we got some immediate feedback from a lot of listeners on day one. And a big shout out to probably the first two that sent it in. Uh, I, I don't know. It was almost simultaneous. Uh, our good friend Kevin and John. But they pointed out that during our discussion of 80s war films, I had made the comment that Top Gun was glorifying the Air Force. When in fact, the film is about the Navy and Navy pilots. Which my brain still can't make sense of this because Navy has boats and Air Force has planes. But they're landing on boats right yeah so okay. I, here's i prepared a statement i don't know what you did brad but i'm just dis- blaming you and i'm an idiot so yeah you that's agree my with excuse. me yes okay so i, I don't know if you, this, this is my reasoning behind it so full full disclosure folks my understanding of the u.s military came from a, a little known show from like 83 to 86 called gi joe a real american hero it, it was known as action uh i think action force in the uk so my 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 assumption of the military from from growing up was that it was a very progressively dressed fighting unit that uh, employed a lot of ninjas and everybody you know just chipped in and they fought the bad guys there there was no delineation between air force and marines and army and everything else um and and i i gotta say i I assumed the military was safe as well so in general nobody died i I think duke went into a coma but that that was about the worst of it yeah in the gi joe movie kind of dies but doesn't did he i he do- think he was in a coma he didn't die yes, he comes back yes at he the comes end, back he's okay so again the military growing up looks safe and everybody just kind of chipped in and and fought the bad guys and there are lots of parachutes and the, the only thing the lasers ever kind of destroyed were the mechanical robots and stuff like that nobody ever really got hurt so movies like platoon and full metal jacket when they were coming out in the later 80s obviously it opened my eyes and i was like wow military is kind of dangerous but that is my excuse for getting the Air Force as well as the Navy confused on who flew planes and for what reason. And, and full disclosure, I still don't understand the difference between them. No. So if, no. if anybody wants to write in and give me a uh, – I will Google this. Don't, I, I won't rely on our listeners <laughs> to provide the information. I'm sure I can find it on the Internet. But, you know, how my brain works, Brad. But I, I don't know if you prepared a statement because – you, you flat out agreed with me. No, yeah. G.I. Joe was where I learned a lot of this stuff. And like <laughs> you said, they shot lasers in that show. Uh, I believe G.I. Joe was blue. Cobra was red. Yes. Or was it the other way around? Yep. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I figured, you know, you shot lasers at each other and no one ever got hit. And, you know, there was some weird twins and, you know, a guy that sold arms with a metal mask. You know, all this weird stuff. You know, as I got older, though, I, I start to identify with Cobra a little bit more. I mean, I, I feel like as a corporation and as a business, they have a lot of stuff going for them. I, I don't know if you've seen some of the episodes, full cafeteria, medical benefits. I mean, oh, I, okay. I don't know. I, I, it looks like a pretty cool company. I mean, they were obviously concerned with climate change because they're trying to steal that weather satellite and make things colder. So, oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, I don't know. Hmm. Um but yeah, that's, that's... Hey, it can't be any worse than what we... Yeah, we'll, we'll keep going. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, keep going. Yeah, so... But thank you, everybody, for pointing that out. It, it, was, it was nice to know that everybody 
was very concerned with our knowledge of how the military worked and we promise we will study harder uh, anytime those type of movies come up and, and we get into the details of it. I, I thought we did a pretty good job, but obviously we, we didn't do like an A-plus job. Maybe, yeah. maybe a B-plus. Yeah, okay. So, Brad, tonight we're talking about Werner Herzog, what would be probably described as one of the greatest directors in the world, obviously coming from Bavaria, and a champion of independent cinema. So I have a question for you right out of the gate. We, we do have a little bit of an age difference between you and I, but I was curious. What movie or movies sparked your interest in independent or foreign film? I know for me growing up, there was a specific event. Now, I, my dad took me to everything, but I know the movie or movies that as soon as I sat down and watched them, I kind of understood that they were not mainstream Hollywood or they they were made outside of the system and it forced me down that path to seek more's out. But before I share my experience, I, I was curious where your love of that type of cinema came from. I, I bet you were going to think that I was going to say reservoir dogs, but it's I not. I kind of thought that was it. Yeah. That's not because when reservoir dogs came out in 92, I was nine years old. So I didn't come to that until a little bit later, but the film that I always go back to as a, as something that was kind of this revelation to me, was going to see Blair Witch Project in the Kentucky Theater in Lexington with a few of my friends. You know, that was, what, 98, 99, yep. 99? So I was just learning. I just had gotten my driver's license, like, literally, like, two days before it came out. And my parents let me drive to a midnight showing of that movie. You know, at that point in time, the Internet wasn't really a thing. So, like, we had bought into all the hype and all the realism. And that movie, like, changed my life when it came to like, oh, like I'm enjoying this on this whole other level. And this is just some small movie. Now it turned into this huge thing, but you know, at the time it's was, I think the highest grossing independent film of all time. I think it's been surpassed, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it has as well. Now yeah. I, when, when that was coming out, the amazing thing about that film was the marketing and sort of the mythos that was leading up to the release. Yeah, so that it, yeah, were this, you plugged this, right into it oh, or did yes. you walk in we, this? We, we bought all that marketing hook, line, and sinker. We were all into it. After the movie was over, like we all stayed together at my friend's house because we were like, no, we're not. I'm not going home and sleeping by my, you know, like we're staying <laughs> together. Like we're in this together. So that's like the independent side. The foreign side happens to be I don't know if you remember this, but late night television, sometimes they would show commercials where you could order VHS videos of anime films. Yeah. Um, and I think they were like thirty nine ninety nine or something like that. And that was like in early 90s, mid 90s. Like, so, you know, it, that was a lot of money for just a movie that you like sent away and six to eight weeks later, like you got a VHS. Well, so VHS in that time period, I mean, you could go to the rental store, but if you were buying something brand new out of the gate, you were paying, what, 80, 90, 100 bucks? Yeah. Because you, you couldn't go and own that thing the way it is today. I mean, uh, rental stores are pretty few and far between. Yeah. I think one of the last ones I knew of Family Videos closing. Just closed down, yeah. Yeah, but you, you couldn't buy it typically at the cost. Yeah. But the thing was, is when you saw the commercial for these movies, it was basically like a glorified trailer, mm -hmm. you know, and they would 
prop up these movies as like, hey, these are these films from the way off lands and you'll, you know, you need to see how violent and stuff they are. And I begged my parents and they bought me a Kira on VHS. And I remember it coming in the mail and I watched it and I was like, I don't know what I'm watching, but it is amazing. Um, so that was like the first one. And then my family was not a Western family, even though looking back, my dad is like the perfect, like he would be like your quintessential, like Western guy. Like he loved Johnny Cash and stuff like this, but he, like he was into samurai movies for some reason. Um, okay, so really, yeah, it was like, this is so, I don't know how it started or what it was, but like seven samurai was a movie that I remember watching with my father when I was young and like, it definitely does not fit him at all, but I just remember that and kind of getting like, so my, my Western knowledge is like zero because like there's a parallel between samurai and Western. Like you're right. It's pretty much the same genre. Just take cowboys out, put in samurais and you know, that's kind of the thing. So we were like a samurai house. And um, so that was kind of mine, like where, you know, on the one side it was Blair Witch and then it was Akira and Seven Samurai for foreign films. And, you know, it was, I was 14, 15, kind of around there is when, when this all kind of started. So um, again, Reservoir Dogs was a little bit, I was, you know, nine, but it, that didn't happen until a little bit later. So that, that's cool. I, I like that pick of films. I, I kind of had the same story that it was family related i i can remember the two movies seeing uh, at a very young age and, and it and in my memory it was the first time i went to a movie theater there, there were two films and i remember seeing the love bug so that was the the disney herbie film yeah herbie but the one he took me right after that was um jacques tati's monsieur Hol- uh monsieur hulet's holiday okay and I, I had no idea what i was watching but i remember it being funny from a from a visual gag, but yeah. I, I was super young, had no idea, and I really went to see just about all of the American films, and and we grew up just in a house where whatever came out that weekend, we were going to go watch. And anytime we went on vacation, we usually sought out one of the older theaters if it wasn't a larger um, city, and he would kind of give me some background and and talk about his experiences growing up in, in some of these big movie houses, etc. And I remember a what trip. was your dad's experience with all that stuff? Like, did he have a background in film or anything like that? Or was it no, just, he just like he, a love he worked, of, he loved it. I mean, he okay. worked at a movie theater growing up in high school and I ended up doing the same thing. Yeah. But he like just, real projection, not, not that. Yeah, no, 35 yeah. millimeter splice, <laughs> yeah. you know, splicing yeah. stuff, everything else. And we have to we, explain to some people that like, you know, at one point in time <laughs> films came on reels and you had to like, yeah, they came in eight and, canisters. You had to put yeah. them together. Those were our days, but yeah. he just, he just had a love for film. But he he really didn't do anything that was foreign, and he just liked watching the old Hollywood films. So whereas your dad may have been watching the samurai films, my dad would have been watching the Clint Eastwood, John Wayne films. And I I really, he showed me every Western growing up, and I really didn't get them or even find a love for them, probably till college. But I remember there was a trip, and it was sophomore year of college. It was 92, actually, so you're talking about Reservoir Dogs. The, the afternoon in downtown Cincinnati, and I, I think we were just traveling out there, we went to this little art house theater, downtown Cincinnati, and there were two movies playing, and we saw them back to back. The first one was from that year, 92, 
and it was One False Move, directed by Carl Franklin, and that stars Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton. And I think Billy Bob Thornton was one of the screenwriters, too. So it was a film I never heard of, and even when you're seeing the credits and stuff like that, I'm thinking, okay, this isn't 20th Century Fox. This is I'm starting to put two and two together and go, okay, this is not your typical studio film, and absolutely loved it. Just adored that film. And we stayed for the next showing, which was an older film from 1946, and it was Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, black and white. So I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I think it's out on Criterion. Yes. Gorgeous film, and it blew me away, that story, which I had known about, but told in that fashion. And all of a sudden, I I just got hooked. I mean, that was the year where, okay, Reservoir Dogs, I got to go see this. All of these independent films. And early 90s was really cranking out some some fantastic product. Yeah, you have Clerks around there too, which is, you know, yeah. kind of got that mystique around it. But but as soon as, you know, Jean Cocteau and and it just put me down a rabbit hole. I, I, that was the year that I discovered Dario Argento and all of the Italian the cursed genre. year. <laughs> the cursed year. No, but it it's funny. There's I, I always thought growing up I knew all about film. I, I think I did in terms of a particular nationality, obviously the US and I, I saw all the older films. But it, it, once you go into college and you get that experience and seeing those two films back to back was just it, it was an eye opener. And all of a sudden, I, I think that's really where my I, I don't know what you call it, like um, my desire to see everything when, when you just automatically kind of realize there's more stuff outside of the things that are in your language. And then, you know, the, the big, uh, oh, Star Wars was really kind of a reimagining or was borrowing heavily from, you know, hidden samurai fortress. films and yeah. hidden fortress. And it, it, it was fun. I just remember that afternoon and all of a sudden it, it just, I felt like I discovered the, this whole new world out there. And even to this day in my late forties, I'm nowhere close to seeing everything that I've wanted to even back, you know, in college. Yeah. I can't wait to retire. Maybe we can just watch movies all the time. <laughs> It'd be nice, man. Yeah. Well, we are talking about a director that, to be totally honest, I have not seen a lot of his films. Like I gotta, I gotta agree. And he's one of the ones that, when you talk about independent film or foreign film, his name pops up all the time. And this was your pick, so I'm, I'm just curious. Well, we, yes, this was Randy's pick. This was Randy's that, pick. That but you, know, he you said picked we, Randy's pick, right? Yeah, so I can be best friends with Randy. Um, okay, that's all, fair. Yes. So this is part of listener request. So and why why have you seen this before? I had I think I saw this cuz this was in the heyday of like going to Blockbuster, you know, 2009, so it's probably out to rent in 2010. So I'm probably getting this like on Amazon uh, Netflix is like, you know, mailing it to me and stuff like that. Cuz I remember like Bangkok Dangerous was around this time too. So, you know, like there was a time where like cage kind of had like this little Renaissance and then he kind of went away. Then he has like another Renaissance. There's seems like every few years he has a Renaissance, but yeah, I remember renting this. Um, I missed it in the theater because when we go and talk about what had come out, you know, I was seeing other stuff, but I had seen this, but it had been, I think I told you like literally 10 years. I think I saw it like in 2010 and I haven't really seen it or thought about it since. Okay. Well, we this topic came up because we had done Con Air when we were talking about turkeys. 
and that was your pick as a Nicolas Cage film. We talked all about Nicolas Cage in general, and then Randy wrote in and recommended that we should see Bad Lieutenant. Now, you had seen it because that was his pick for his favorite, I think, Nick Cage film. I had never seen it, and I actually watched it as soon as Randy had sent in that email. So this would be my second viewing, and it's less than six months. But, Brad, when this sucker came out, it didn't really do very well, though, correct? No, it has a $25 million budget, which I think is, I don't know, we'll get into that. Only makes uh, $10.6 million at the box office. So I found this weird. $1.7 million domestically and about eight point eight internationally so it makes a lot more makes almost you know almost eight times more money seven times more money internationally than it does domestically okay um you know rotten tomatoes has it at 85 percent, which for the type of movie this is and the subject matter i feel like 85 is pretty high you know it's it's a difficult movie and i think you know for for it to be at 85 percent, i think is pretty pretty spectacular yeah yeah it showed up on a lot of lists that year. As... Yeah, it, I, I had noticed that too. Like top tens, top fives, even best film of the year. Like a lot of people had it, like as one of their favorite films of '09, and um, comes out like November 10th, so it's like right at the tail end. Do you want to hear what it was going up against? Because it's kind of amazing. I am curious because I would have thought Nicolas Cage, even at this stage in 2009 could carry some pretty good box office returns. Now, Werner Herzog is not your typical director that you're going to kind of throw his name out on a poster. I know going back and doing some research, there were a lot of interviews with him leading up to the release of this film and after it, and critics were just rushing to go and talk to him about it and uh, Mr. Cage about his performance as well. So I kind of assumed, given how it was received with critics, and a lot of the, I don't know what you call it, the, the top 10 list and, you know, you get into Oscar talk and stuff like that. This would have done really well, but I'm guessing it came up against um, some heavy guns that late yeah, in here. Yeah, so you have the Jim Carrey, a Disney's A Christmas Carol. Okay. Um, you have Precious, which I think did very well at the Academy Awards that year. The Fourth Kind. Do you remember The Fourth Kind? Was that Mila that, uh, yeah, movie? Alien Abduction film? Yeah, where I think I think it opens up and she's like, guys, seriously, this movie is for real. So right. you know, we were talking yes. about Blair Witch and then, you know, they literally tried that in that movie and it did not do. I don't think it did terrible, but I don't think it did great. Um, Harry Brown, which is like they tried to make Michael Caine into an action hero, I think. Uh, yeah, that, remember that, that yeah, that correctly. was. Uh, it's a it's a great film. It's sort of a revenge type tale, but okay, it's I haven't seen yeah. it. But, oh yeah, um, you need to watch that one. Okay, uh, the Messenger, which is the I jo- Woody Harrelson and um, God, what is uh, Ben Foster? I believe they are like soldiers who go to people's houses and tell them tell them that their sons or daughters were killed in action. Oh, I think. for some reason, I was thinking was was there a Luc Besson film, The Messenger, Joan of Arc? That's probably earlier, but I know the I, movie you're talking yes, about now. Yes. Yes. Um, here we go. Uh, we have the Twilight Saga, New Moon. Of course. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, Planet 51, which I believe is like a huge bomb, which we're not going to do. Um, the Blind Side. Okay. That's Old Sandra Dog. Bullock, right? Yeah, that, that movie crushed. Old Dogs. Which, which was is, huge. Yeah, John Travolta. And, is Robin Williams in that movie? Uh, I knew it was Tim Allen. 
What's his? No, you're uh, thinking of wild hogs. This is oh, wild hogs. hogs. Oh, okay. Yeah, then. Yeah, maybe they all blend okay. together. I haven't yes. seen any of them. One of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life: The Boondock Saints Two, All Saints Day, which I think that movie is hot trash. Have you ever seen, seen that movie? No, oh, I've seen the first God. one. I have not seen the second one because everybody told me stay away from the second one. Yeah, so I it's, have. they turn up the homophobia like even higher than the first one, if that's even possible. And a movie that I actually love here, The Road, um, which <laughs> that movie comes out on, I think on Thanksgiving that year. So you know. Come around with the family, then let's go see the road and get super depressed. Well, but that film, so the ones that you've mentioned, you're getting into November, December, where if you're not releasing a blockbuster, you're probably releasing something that you think is going to catch from an Oscar perspective and get yeah. some legs in the first quarter yep. of the next year, right? Yep. And then a movie that we talked about, uh, Mulan, The Warrior Princess. Okay. Um, internationally. And then The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Which was comes the out international. sequel. Is that the sequel or the third? I think that's the. Is that the second or third? I, I don't can't remember. Girl, the girl with the dragon tattoo, then the girl who played with fire. Fire. Horn, yes, hornet's yes. nest. Yeah, the would be the, one. the okay. third. Okay. Yep. So those are the films. So it was pretty stacked um, for November. I can see in hindsight why a film with a horrible title, which is not a remake, which is not a sequel which is weirdly maybe tied into the 1992 Harvey Keitel movie, maybe, you know, it, do I need to see that movie to understand what's going on in this one? You know, there's, I'm assuming there's a lot of confusion with that, even though I don't think Bad Lieutenant was like a huge movie, but I think it had sort of a following, right? Because Harvey Keitel, that movie's 92, so he does, you know, Reservoir Dogs and then Pulp Fiction, so he's kind of a big star at some point in time, so... It was a well-regarded independent film. We'll we'll talk about this when we get into some sort of facts or trivia about the film, whether or not it was a remake or a sequel, etc. I'm really curious about this because I, I think when the production companies were releasing it, they were probably looking at it from the standpoint that if you have Nicolas Cage and you get a lot of momentum from the reviews and his performance, and if it were picking up some legs for award season... It was going to do okay within the States, but I think the name Werner Herzog draws more attention outside of the U.S. Yes, yeah, which explains its international appeal. Sure, and you, you have, I, I'll, I'll tell everybody if you can seek out, there is a letter that Roger Ebert wrote to Werner Herzog, and this is, I, I want to say, a couple of years after Roger Ebert is battling cancer, and I can't remember the documentary that Herzog released at this time period, but you have some critics who are just avid Werner Herzog fans. So I can see all of his films going out, getting really good critical acclaim, but the budget to put into a Werner Herzog film, <laughs> that seems really high uh, in in hindsight, even though you have somebody like Nicholas. Well, you have Nicholas Cage and uh, Eva Mendez in yeah. this thing too. So I'm I'm sure that they thought a little bit of screen power at that time mixed yeah. with an acclaimed director was, was going to do well, but I, I'm kind of not shocked that it bombed too. Yeah. Cause it's, <laughs> I mean, we'll get into it, but it's not a, it's, it's one of those movies. So well, yeah, we, we've, so let's get into behind the camera in front of the camera. So we're talking about director Werner Herzog. So he has 73, directing credits he, he's a director writer actor 
Most people know him from either Jack Reacher in 2012, he plays the villain, or The Mandalorian more recently in 2019. And he's he done voices on The Simpsons from 2011 to 2020. If you go back and look at his acting, he, he's been all over the place. Yeah, yeah. But as a director, I'm curious, Brad, so going into this discussion, what Werner Herzog films have you seen? So, yeah. I was going through his filmography and I'm like, you know what? I've seen some really weird ones and then I haven't, se- but I haven't seen a lot. So I've seen like a handful. The one that you said you were watching the other night, uh, even elves started small dwarves, dwarves. I'm sorry. Even dwarves started small. I've seen that for some reason, which I have no idea why. I think I was, I don't know. It might've been in some weird film class or something like that. I don't know. I've seen it. Dude, <laughs> we're just you, gonna move on. You, oh, we'll talk about it here in a minute. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I saw, so I saw Grizzly Man because I believe that won for best documentary that year. Right. Uh, it's that's a long. I pause, saw man. The, I saw like that he did something for the Killers. I've seen that. Most of his stuff. So most of the stuff I've seen has just been the documentary stuff. But I have seen his. Um, what is his vampire, his Nosferatu? Nosferatu, the vampire. Yeah, I've seen that. Okay. So, so total seen, of how I've many? probably seen like five films. Okay. Well, I've, I'm, I'm, I've got 73. six. 73. Okay. Yeah, I've six of 73. And what's funny is this was, I was excited about this week because I, I don't know when I bought it. It was in the two watch pile, but Shout Factory released that Werner Herzog box set on Blu-ray. So I was super excited to use this week to go through them. But as many documentaries and films that are in that, I wanted to make sure I just picked out ones that I, I could talk about. To your point, it starts with even Dwarves started small, and that box set ends. From 1970, I believe, is when that comes out. Yes, 1970. And, and it ends with My Best Fiend, a documentary that he did in 1999 about his relationship with uh, Kinski. So I, I watched those two. And I've already seen Nosferatu the Vampire, so I wanted to pick something with Kinski. So I did Aguirre, The Wrath of God. I watched that one. So those are the three that I watched out of the box set. Now, outside of that, I had seen Nosferatu, and I'd seen Rescue Dawn from 2006 with Christian Bale. Oh, I've seen, okay, I've seen that. Yes, yes, Okay, yes. so we're, we're about yes. even the six. And I got to tell you, so the fun story about this. As I'm sitting down, and everybody in the house is doing their own thing, and all of a sudden, my wife comes up and goes, hey, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to watch a Werner Herzog film. Well, who's that? Hey, that's the guy from The Mandalorian. Oh, okay. He directs things? Yes. <laughs> hey, he directs things. Yes. yes. Yeah. So I'm I, I'm kind of going through this a little bit and, and telling Tabitha, the movie I'm watching is called Even Dwarves Started Small. She's like, well, what's that about? And I read the synopsis, and it's about dwarves who revolt uh, against this I don't know prison or sanatorium and take it over yes and she goes oh that sounds very interesting I'm gonna watch it with you and then of course my daughter Angel comes around and says what are you guys doing so we relay the whole thing she goes oh that sounds interesting I'm gonna watch that too so of course I get a text from you going hey what are you doing and I tell you right before we start watching even doors start out small and your response was do you know anything about that film? Yeah. I say, no, sure don't. It's the first movie in this box set. And you don't respond at all after that. So we sit and watch that film. And by the end of it, my wife is in tears 
Angel is like, I, I can't believe I just saw that film. And it absolutely ended in a total Troy is in timeout and can't pick movies for the rest of 2021 now. Now you're already in the already in timeout. I'm in the I'm timeout for the rest of the year. I can't I can't pick any films. So it is a very angry, pretentious art film with a lot of animal cruelty in it. So it, it didn't go well. A lot of animal cruelty. A lot of animal cruelty. So I did some research on it to try and understand it because I didn't know what to make when I saw it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm glad I saw it. I can't say it's a very good film. I wouldn't run out there and recommend it to anybody. No. Uh, it, it was cra- and, and it was the animal cruelty and uh, what really affected my wife is even though there are actors and everything that are, are portraying these characters within the film, Tabitha really felt that Herzog was taking advantage of their dwarfism and everything else. Yeah. And she talks about a scene towards the end where they're throwing things through the window and glass is shattering and the actor is tied to a chair and he looks terrified. Like, get, get me out of this scenario. So I don't know the entire history of that film. It was an uncomfortable watch. Again, it it really feels like it's coming from Herzog at a very, I don't know, volatile, angry place sort of saying a lot about the world and it's not good. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and when I told her what we were reviewing this week, she hates Nicolas Cage. So there is no chance whatsoever that she is ever going to watch a film directed by Werner Herzog starring Nicolas Cage. So <laughs> Bad Lieutenant, Poor Call New Orleans, this will never make it in front of my wife. Your, your wife is done. But I, I have to I have to give my daughter some credit because um, she sat down and watched, uh, uh, and I, I can't ever say the first name. Is it Aquari? The Wrath yeah, of God with Kinski? The Wrath of God. I always just say The Wrath of God. The Wrath of God. It, it, it's a beautiful film. It's very fascinating about, you know, really a Spanish troop going through the Amazon forest looking for El Dorado and she thought it was good as well so you know chalk went up for Angel to kind of say even after watching even Door started small she jumped right back in there with more Herzog so you and I have seen about six films from Herzog so we're experts we're experts but I have the question I have for you well I have two questions first of all are you going to watch more Herzog uh yeah I mean I, I don't like at least everything he makes I believe is interesting and I think his documentaries are Top notch. I know he has a new documentary on Apple that's called Fireball, maybe, which I think I'm going to check out next. Um, and then I might try to go back and look at some of his other non-documentary stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know how there's just some directors that you just like, you can't see everything. And it just seems like some sure. of his stuff just doesn't resonate with me. Not that I just don't like it. It just, I just don't watch it. So... No, no offense to him. It just there's a, there's almost infinite numbers of other films out there, so it just seems like his doesn't really click with me. But it's not out of any sort of lack of trying, or they're not any good. It just there's don't. So okay, well, I got to say, I'm I'm having a lot of fun with this Shop Factory box set. I'm I'm really gonna go through and watch all of them. So Fitz Fitzcarraldo. I think is the next one I'm really excited about watching, which is another Kinski film. But I got to tell you, just out of six films, this this guy, in my opinion, is pretty brilliant. He has a voice in cinema that is so unique. <laughs> We're going to talk about I, I When we get to the ending of the film we talk about tonight, I'll just put it out there. 
it surprised me given what I've seen of his work this week alone. And I'll kind of leave it at that. But I am super interested in going back, especially through the 70s, 80s, um, 90s, and watch him progress as a filmmaker because I've watched a lot of interviews with him this week too. And he's he's just fascinating. I, I love listening to him talk about film. I love listening to him talk about other directors and other actors. But I'm I'm super. Do you love, ex- do you love reading him about him and the uh, the director of Abel Ferrar from the? Oh yeah, first? we'll we'll get to that in okay. a minute. But so the other interesting thing about this film is it's written by William F. Finkelstein, I believe is how you say his last name. This individual who wrote the screenplay really this is his only cinema or film credit everything that he did leading up to this were a lot of cop shows cop shows yeah cop dramas so yeah. he did cop rock in 1990 la law from 86 to 94 law and order in 2001 nypd blue 2003 2005 so that that's the type of resume that he has so clearly this is sort of his big breakthrough in terms of feature films and we will talk in more detail about this but the person who did the music or the composer for the film Mark Isham. So he has about 186 composer credits. Now, when you look through his, I don't know, the the films that he scored, nothing just sticks out, right? But I want to bring up his name because his name's going to come up later. And just to give you a little test, uh, just a taste of things that he's worked on, he did Bill and Ted Face the Music from 2020, which sidebar I thought was terrible. Um, (laughs) The Accountant in 2016, Mechanic Resurrection in 2016. He did... 42 in 2013. He did Warrior. So we talked about that on this show, yeah. 2011. The Mist in 2007. So he's he's done so many different films. He doesn't stand out as a composer. No. Except maybe in this film. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. So that's a lot of stuff going on behind you know, the camera. In front of the camera, we have Nicolas Cage as Terrence. Now, we have talked a lot about Nicolas Cage when we talked about Con Air. So I don't think we have to go through his filmography again. <laughs> but with him, we also have Eva Mendez as Frankie. She worked with Nicolas Cage on Ghost Rider. I feel like, what what was the movie that you sort of started paying attention to her? For me, it was uh, Training, Training Day. Training Day. Yeah, yeah 2001. Yeah. yeah. Now, leading up to this film, she did The Spirit in 2008. Ugh. Then Bad Lieutenant in 2009. And then the next year, she turns around and does The Other Guys in 2010. Yeah. Um, she's really good in the place between the pines. Yes, yes, that's a great film. Yes. I think she's an amazing actress. So I wish she would do more. I don't feel like she's in enough. I, I agree. I I think she needs to be given more roles like the one that we're going to talk about today, or Training Day. But I, every time she's in a film, I I thoroughly enjoy, you know, what she does. And she gets to be married to Ryan Gosling, so good for her. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Um, the rest of this cast is, is fantastic. Now, Val Kilmer plays Stevie. I don't want to talk a lot about Val Kilmer because he will pop up here shortly, I think this year, in a film that I want to talk about that bombed. Specifically, um, well, I, we'll, we'll save that one. But you've got Feruza Balk as Heidi, Brad Dorif as Ned, Chucky is in this film, which I believe Herzog had worked with Dorif before. I, I say this name, I- Exhibit. But yeah, I'm gonna X in, to the Z. Yeah, in in full disclosure, every time I read it, I read it as Exibit. Oh, <laughs> so God, Dad. Yeah, I know. At least you're not the, calling him DMX. So I I know I know that would but be it's Earl Exhibit Simmons as Big Fate. You've got Michael Shannon. I totally 
just out of the blue, Michael Shannon shows up as playing Mike. just a nobody character. Yeah, he plays uh, the guy that is working in the the records or file room or yeah, um, what do you call it where they take all the drugs and the guns and everything that they so that's that supply room. I want to call it the supply room, but that's, that's not, not the it. supply room. No, <laughs> he's not the janitor. So you got uh, Sean Hattasi as Armand and Shia Wiggum as Justin. So those are a lot of the main players. So right out of the gate, though, this this is this film is all about Nicolas Cage, and we'll talk about how awesome that is but a couple of facts and you you brought this up already about the film a lot of people either considered this a remake a sequel reimagining of the film abel ferrara considered this a remake when he heard about it and he said all those involved within this remake quote should all die in hell should die in hell yes (laughs) he was very upset about this he called the screenwriter william finkelstein an idiot and Herzog, in, in all of this, responded that he had no idea who Abel Ferrara was. Never heard of the guy. <laughs> Damn. That that's, that's that's crazy. That's pretty low. Like, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know who you're complaining. Wow. And, and Herzog does not consider this a remake or sequel. And he really doesn't think this has anything to do with Ferrara's film. He actually wanted a different title to begin with. So producers seem to have added the bad lieutenant on there in order to get better marketing because I think within the independent film circles at that time, bad lieutenant with Harvey Keitel, you know, just had some prominence. Everybody praised Keitel at that point for his performance and, and that film had some notoriety, even though it was also controversial at the time. Have, now you've seen Bad Lieutenant, right? I have, yes. And I rewatched it this week. Okay, I did too. I'd be curious to have some thoughts. It was a depressing week. (laughs) Man, so I got to ask you, do you see it as a remake or reimagining? There's a lot of sort of similarities. Obviously, you know, you have your gambling, drug addict sort of deal. Um, The fates of the two characters are a lot different. Um, The settings are different. But, you know, you can definitely you know, connect the dot between the 92 and then this one. So, I, you know, I don't know. They call him Lieutenant. I mean, he's a Lieutenant in this movie. And, and I don't know. I don't know. Like it, it seems a little too close for me to feel like they never saw bad Lieutenant. Yeah. I, I agree with you. There's no I, I think way. That's any, I think that's a lie. I there's mean, no way anybody behind the camera could have said, no, this has nothing so, to do with. So in college, film. if I, you know, if I turn in this screenplay, I'm probably getting it back and I'm going to get a talk with a professor and they're going to say, you know what? You kind of plagiarized some stuff from this other film called bad Lieutenant. So let's <laughs> rework some of this stuff, you know? Yeah. They, they both have the basic plot of the drug addiction, a violent cop doing all of this crap his encounters with gambling, crime, and sex. But I got to tell you, the scene that sticks out that makes me think that these are very closely related is there is an interrogation that happens in both that happen outside of a car. And the interrogation leads to sexual acts happening outside of a car. So when I see those sequences and how those er characters act within both films, be it Keitel or Cage, I have to imagine the screenwriter at least had been watching that film and was borrowing heavily from it and trying to put his, you know, I don't know, TV law and order spin on top of this. And both of them. I have to tell you a funny story real quick. Yeah. So um, I don't own bad Lieutenant for some reason, 
So I was looking for it and it happened to be on HBO max. So I'm like, Oh great. You know, I have that. I'll just stream it or whatever. And I know the scenes, you know, cause yeah. <laughs> when you're younger, you know, the scenes, uh, HBO max cuts that out. The two girls. Really? Yeah. Which I think like, did they cut, did they cut out Harvey's full frontal? Yeah. Like I don't, there's nothing really, oh. it's kind of neutered in a, neutered um but yeah uh you know like i don't know because i know initially bad lieutenant was an nc-17 movie and they had right. to recut it for blockbuster and all that stuff so i think they're playing that version of it so not the uncut yeah not the uncut so. oh, i get to see all everything yeah. this yeah. week so you're right it's hard watch i i thought this was interesting both of the films so bad lieutenant 92 and this one were released on the same day november 20th i saw that and this film, Bad Lieutenant, Protocol, New Orleans, was supposed to be set in New York. So the screenplay originally called for that. But of course, Herzog and Cage both wanted to do New Orleans. And it takes place shortly after Katrina. So that's a lot of information. Which, okay. Yeah. Do you feel like this film, A, has anything, like, they don't use Katrina at all in this movie. Except for, like, the opening scene. It's really not that big of a deal, right? Mm, yeah, you ready to talk about the film? No, we'll okay. We'll we'll put it on the back burner. We'll put okay. it on the back burner. Okay, but it, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, no, I, it's a good question. It's a question okay. I wrote down. Okay, so we can talk about it. But let's let's just get to the film. I I think this is a pretty interesting discussion. Big shout out to our bestest buddy Randy. Yeah, our best friend who, Randy. Yeah, who, who never who, complains about me at all. No, he loves you, man. <laughs> I, I'm second time watch for both of us. What are your thoughts on this thing? This this was sort of your choice for this week. Yeah. Um, this is one of those movies where if you ever recommend a movie to someone, you kind of got to know who they are and what they like and make sure that they're going to be okay with what they're seeing. Because this movie is, is pretty intense, like ample drug use, even the subject matter. I, mean, I don't know if he rapes that girl, but it's like pretty close and it's kind of just put off to the side and there's never any repercussions for him, like pretty much violating this girl for drugs and making her boyfriend watch. Like it's like, yeah, it's, it's not, there's scenes like that where, you know, and it just seems like it's never ending and it's two hours of Nicolas Cage being insane but for a particular reason and that reason is because he's always on drugs and he smokes a lot of crack in this movie and i think that is the best way for nicholas cage to be in a movie is off the hinges because he's allowed to be on drugs and it's just like hey nicholas cage be nicholas cage in this movie like if you think he's wild and like something like face off this one is like way over the top. Like it's even more than that. It's, this is closer to like, I don't know. Like I think it's so whatever, whatever movie I picked, I think it was wild at heart or whatever for favorite Nicholas Cage film. I forget it. This is my new favorite. Really? This I would have agreed favorite. with you until the end of the movie. So we'll get into that, but yeah, no, I, I, this movie is all about Nicholas Cage and I think it's unfair to say, that it's Nicolas Cage crazy throughout the entire film. When he goes crazy, you get your Nicolas Cage moments. 
but if you, I don't know if if you're looking for a film that wants to go through variations of Nicolas Cage moments. So if you want to see Nicolas Cage in pain, this is where you're going to pick probably your best scenes. If you want to see Nicolas Cage addicted to drugs, you're going to get that variation of Nicolas Cage, right? If you want to see Nicolas Cage in full chaos, just no rules, everything out the door, you're going to get that variation of him in here. So each of the craziness that he goes through I think there's enough nuance within the performance, and this is why it's slowly, if not it already has become my favorite Nicolas Cage film. Because as I'm going back and, and writing down these moments, I, I broke it down into, hey, this is prior to his back injury or incident. This is him dealing with his back pain. This is his drug addiction phase. This is when he is just bonkers. He's going crazy. <laughs> He's, he's full-on committed to showing his zaniness. And then you get into that redemption phase. He really runs the gambit from a performance standpoint. Yeah, I have a question for you before okay. we get too far off of it. Did you understand the beginning of the movie when he jumps in the water and then it cuts to him being at the doctor? Like, obviously, they're close enough to where you can kind of infer something happened when he's trying to save that guy. But that to me, like, took me a second to figure out, like, oh, he got hurt in that process, and now his back's all messed up. Yeah, th- it's so- a weird cut, and there's the only reason why I kind of, it's just, I feel like they ha- should have like something in between those two things to kind of help you bridge that this is the cause and this is the effect. Well, yeah, you the first few minutes of the film, you get Nicolas Cage just comes off as this confident corrupt cop. So him and Val Kilmer are showing up to the police station. They're there to get something out of one of their buddies' lockers. Which is the scene which the police station is underwater because of Katrina. Katrina, which yes. Which is the only kind of callback to Katrina in this movie. I, I, maybe I'm all wrong. but Yeah, so Katrina's going on. They're into the police station as they're raiding this guy's locker. You, you really see him, I, I guess, it, at the beginning of his character development, which is this corrupt cop. He's ready to screw over his fellow police officer. And then as soon as they find out that somebody has been left in the jail cell and the water is rising and he's going to drown, him and Val Kilmer are just standing up there and they're making bets about when's it going to happen. It's going to happen at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. And this guy is pleading for his life and they're making fun of him. So that's your introduction to Nicolas Cage. So when you see this, you... And if you've seen the Harvey Keitel film, you kind of get, okay, we got two hours of Nicolas Cage who's just going to be this deplorable person you're going to follow for two hours and there's nothing to like about him. But right in the middle of it, he's looking at it and then he decides, okay, I'm going to jump in and save this guy. And And Val Kilmer, Stevie, is like, what are you doing? Just let somebody else take care of this. This isn't for us, et cetera. And he jumps right in. And as a result of jumping right in there, he hurts himself permanently hurts himself he's given you know from the doctor basically saying you're going to deal with this for the rest of your life it's going to be mild to severe back pain and then all of a sudden here's some prescription medication and you now have to take this in order to manage it forever yeah Yeah. i thought that was so as soon as that happened it got my attention because right out of the gate you know it's a little bit different than what you saw with ferrara's film which is Harvey Keitel going through just real depravity, right? Or depravity, yeah. however you say it. 
Yeah, the nun, some... the nun does not make an appearance in this movie. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, Keitel, you could say, has some redemption at the end, but right out of the gate with this one, there is something different about Nicolas Cage that he makes a choice, and all of a sudden you go, oh, we've got a complex, deep, and nuanced character, and you're gonna you're gonna have to try and figure this guy out for like the next two hours. Yeah, I mean, because it shows you that he does have a conscience. He does. Yeah. And and that's why I think without that scene in the beginning, everything else that sort of follows at the tail end of the film really wouldn't make sense and would kind of come out of left field if you didn't see that first event and what injured him to begin with. It's funny because you and I have a different reading on the ending. I can already tell. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So yep. um, so that that's Nicolas Cage. Now, the back pain. I got to say, I don't know what you thought of his performance. But Nicholas Cage's the quasimodoing of him is like <laughs> yes. insane. Yeah, he walks with one shoulder slightly raised. He when he's getting up to accept his reward for saving that guy, you just see this grimace of him just trying to get up. Or even when he sits down and, and is turning to talk with somebody, he really plays this thing up. And he but he doesn't do it in such a fashion that it's overacting. It's all these little touches that he does, and he he's consistent, which is pretty surprising. So we're getting old, Troy. I just turned thirty eight this week. You ever deal with like back pain? Yeah, no. but not. I mean, not to that extent. Not extent. Okay. Yeah, I, I've never really had much, so I know it's coming. But I, de- I deal with more hip pain just because yeah. I grew up in leg braces and I got that dodgy hip. So yeah. No, I just. The day where, you know, it hurts to stand up, I'm I'm not looking forward to that. I know it's coming, but Well, what's interesting is right one of the things that changes, and I don't know what you thought about this. So in the beginning, before he jumps into the water to save the guy, he's handing all that stuff over to Val Kilmer. Here's his gun, it's in a holster, et cetera. And the first thing you see once he becomes a lieutenant and he's walking around, he puts that gun, that magnum right in his right by pants. His dick. Yeah. yeah, just right there in front of everybody to see, and he's walking yeah. around with that now. Yeah, it's you know it's an extension of his manlyhood. So everything about Nicolas Cage has totally changed after this incident, and then you start to get into the drug addiction phase. So I got to ask you, what what do you think about drug addiction phase, Nicolas Cage? It's fun to see him like that, like just fun. I mean. <laughs> him acting that like okay, him yeah, act, yeah. the way he's acting it's i mean there's no fun in this movie at all like this movie is depraved and it's difficult there's some dark comedy yeah but it's still not fun like oh it's not fun no you're yeah. not sitting there like oh it's jim carrey stupid yeah, yeah. fun slapstick yeah. i mean it's it's a difficult movie but i it all hinges on nicolas cage like plain and simple and when he is able to just let go and just do his thing, it's enjoyable to watch. And it makes this movie easier to digest because if not, if like, I don't know, like if, if it was like, Hey, here are the track marks in my arm. And I like, am like, there's a scene um, in the old uh, bad Lieutenant where Harvey Keitel's like pass out on the couch and like there's kids around and at, at one point in time, I for, kind of forgot, but I'm like, oh, these kids are just being neglected by this guy and they're going to sit here, you know, and then like other people walk in and you, you realize he's not alone. But like, so there's nothing like on that level to where like, oh, 
he's got these kids at home and like he's all drugged out and you know heroin is still spewing out this needle and all this stuff but you know nothing is is that dark but it's still pretty dark and again he's like setting people up um he is the most corrupt cop there is and i don't know that was a little difficult too obviously to see like corrupt cops in 2021 but um you know it's just that's just what the time we are in now but um well so he's a corrupt cop but he's a good cop like he's a smart cop one of the things i liked about this film is they highlight the highs and lows of terrence through his drug addiction but they spend time also highlighting how smart he is at being able to handle witnesses, the interrogation. You see Stevie's approach of taking somebody in an interrogation room and trying to beat him up. Beat him up, yeah, physical. Yeah, you see his approach of, I'm going to show you respect, you show me respect. And then the other scene that I thought really highlighted his smarts is when they're trying to go and capture some guy. So you've got all of SWAT and the police department outside the house. And he says, hold on a second, I'm going to go next door. I'm going to go through the house. Now he does make a pit stop and steal some drugs. Yeah. But then he goes through the back door and he gains access to that apartment, brings that guy out without a bullet fired. So I like the fact that, again, I think what Herzog is doing here, and especially the screenwriter, they're giving you really Nicolas Cage unhinged, but they still spend time to kind of say he got to this point because he is a smart person. He's still a good cop to some level, even though he's a corrupt cop. Which probably is like a combination of the worst two things, being a good cop and a corrupt cop, if you think about it. It is. Um, and here, you know, here's the thing I really like about Cage's performance. He, as he's taking the pills and he is taking more cocaine and he goes, he starts to develop these ticks and patterns through his performance and they become very believable. The hair? S- the hair, the scratching the cheek, you start to see, I don't know, it, it's not a, a slur within a speech. It's almost like his cheek is becoming numb and he starts to have this the Novocaine, The Novocaine talk. Yeah, the Novocaine talk. That, that's yeah. a great way to describe it. I love that that starts to come out within sort of that section of drug-addicted Nicolas Cage performance. And my, my favorite scene of, of the drug-addicted Nicolas Cage is when the complaints are filed and he's sitting, I think it's in his captain's office and the captain's like, Hey, look, man, I, I don't want to tell you, but you got to go work in the, the property room. That's what it's called. It's the property, the property room. room. Yeah. Yeah, yes. right. yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden you get this flash of giddiness in his eyes. It's the one place that he wants to be in. And then he has to hide that really quick. That is my, that's my yeah, favorite backstory on that. He was Michael Shannon works in the property room and he was stealing drugs to give to Nicholas Cage. Cage. Yeah. yeah. And now Nicolas Cage has full access to it. Yeah, no. And so his he's supposed to be punished in this moment. But the way that his eyes just lighten up and then all of a sudden he just catches himself and has to bring it back in to look depressed that he's not working on this case, etc. That's that's a great performance. Again, it's those little things that all of a sudden make me think this is this might be my favorite Nicolas Cage film in terms of performance, not Nicol- favorite Nicolas Cage film yeah. overall yeah. from his performance standpoint. And then. I, no- I, I think, yeah, this, in hindsight, I believe he's doing more in this movie than I think a lot of other actors would have done. And I'm kind of sad it wasn't kind of, this film isn't really talked about as much in our circles as it should be for his performance. I, I feel like 
it gets glossed over a lot and we did it and I was yeah. guilty of it too, but it's like, whoa, going back and, and watching it again, you realize how good he can be. And it's almost disappointing when he's not, when you see him in films and he's just season of the witch or something like that, where you're just like, this is straight trash and you're not even trying. Um, Cause when he does try, when he does go for it, like it usually pays off it's at least memorable. Um, like here, you're never going to forget this performance. No, absolutely. And a couple of scenes where I think he does it so well to where it's believable versus somebody else. And, and it's already over the top, but that sequence where he's standing in the pharmacy waiting for his prescription and he just ends up going off on the lady, it's Nicolas Cage in sort of that chaotic moment but it, it feels authentic. It feels true. And I think a lesser person would have really amped it up. And he, there's well, even like a lesser about... Nicholas cage. Like he would have <laughs> yeah. done like vampires kiss, like crazy, you know, but here he's a better actor than he was way back then. And here it's like totally believable. And almost to the point where you're like, yeah, I can see someone acting just like that. Well, and you, you see that rage come out at that point where he hasn't really, I don't know, gone down the rabbit hole of the drugs. But later in the film, you see that rage come out when he is going back to the nursing home for the second time. And he starts, to, he, he's interrogating the grandmother. He takes the <laughs> oxygen out of the old woman and is trying to get an answer in terms of where the grandson, you know, is hiding. Then as soon as he gets his information, he puts it back in there and then he starts going off on him, telling him, you know, you're the reason why this this country is going down the drain. You get that rage, and it's it's a, a variation of Nicolas Cage just doped out of his mind versus being frustrated standing in line at a pharmacy waiting for his prescription. It, it could have come down to, like, the same type of performance, but Nicolas Cage manages to make them uh, – the, the one in the pharmacy is just mad – the one in the retirement home is menacing. Like you fear for their lives. Yeah, yeah. And at and at that point, you can see where he is taking this character. It's just so fascinating to watch. And I, I love the little things he laughs every time that they mention the street name G. He has that little recurring laugh when there anybody mentions, oh yeah, such and such G, and he's he laughs every time he has to say it. <laughs> I don't know if I noticed that or not. Yeah, he's, he, it's, that's where some of the dark humor and stuff comes from is you get to see the things that make him laugh being all drugged out, and, it, and it's just odd. But um, I, I, I don't know. I, it, even the redemptive cycle on the, portion, on the back end of it, when he realizes he's going deeper and everybody else is starting to come out of it, you know, especially Frankie, who is going to the meetings now, you can see him bring that performance around. Again, it's authentic. It's not a night and day. He's not quite there yet. Even when he's giving her the spoon, which I think is a fantastic moment in the film, you can tell he's really struggling. He's got those inner demons. And again, he he's so top-notch in this. Yeah. We're going to have to get to the end. because, Yeah. But... So for a film, okay, I, I have a, a, a question for you. So for a mm -hmm. film, which his girlfriend is a call girl, and is um, you know very sexualized in this movie. This movie is weirdly, except for the one little part, is weirdly sexless. And I found that was really weird compared to the first film, 
I don't want to say first film compared to the bad Lieutenant in 92. Like, yeah, there's the one part and there's a lot of drugs and stuff, but it's weirdly like sexless for a film. That's like stars, a call girl and all this stuff. It's just weird. I don't, I don't know why that was jarring to me, but it just was, it was just weird. Was it jarring because you watched the Harvey Keitel version and then came into this one? No, I, I mean, I just remember all that stuff from that version and coming into this one. I was like, wait a minute. Like, yes, there's, Take out the one scene that's really terrible and awkward and stuff, but like the rest of the movie, it's it's just weird how they talk about sex all the time, but it's like sexless. To it's just weird that they go so hard with everything else, and then they kind of keep it away, keep like all the sex out of this movie. And I don't know why they chose to do that or or what the what the deal was. I mean, and I'm not saying it needs it. It's just they go so hard into everything else that it's just weird that that's gone. I, I agree with you. I mean, most of, even when Frankie calls on Terrence to come help him out and you get the introduction of the character who Terrence intimidates, which is going to come back and haunt him towards the end of the film, you know, she gets beat up. Right. Yeah. And you have all of this stuff where it's inferred or they talk about it or it's sitting at the fringe of it, but it's never front and center outside of the one scene where he takes advantage of the couple and he's doing what, you know, just some crazy stuff in that parking lot. You get the feeling that I don't know if it's Cage or Herzog or Mendez or anybody else or even the screenwriter. That's not what they were fascinated with. I mean, at the end of the day, strip out the Nicolas Cage and the, the Werner Herzog moments. This is a pretty straightforward police procedural. I mean, if you, if you take all of if you take the director away and you t- take Nicolas Cage away, you pretty much have something that could probably be on Law & Order or NYPD Blue or any of the cop shows if you just yeah. rework it a little bit because that's all it is, It's right? a 44-minute episode. It pretty much. Stripped down. But you start... I, I think one of the comparisons I saw when they were talking about this film is it really does feel like a, a jazz performance on Celluloid where you have the screenplay... And it lays the groundwork for the story, and it's a straight police procedural. But then you have Herzog doing his thing in certain moments with the camera angles, and he goes off script. So that spoon sequence that I just mentioned, that Uh wasn't in the script. That's something that Herzog wanted to do. You get the iguanas and everything else, which (laughs) I have some questions on that that I have for you because I want your interpretation of it. And then you got this Nicolas Cage performance. And I think, again... If it weren't for Herzog, if it weren't for Cage, and even the screenwriter, this could have gone south in a couple of different ways. If the screenplay wasn't as good, you just have Nicolas Cage being Nicolas Cage and some Werner Herzog moments. If you didn't have a competent director, you'd have Nicolas Cage probably putting (laughs) in a worse performance. Oh, yeah. Um, The screenplay might be good, et cetera. Or if you have a different actor, you might, well, here's Werner Herzog, and you get those moments, and it's pretty good screenplay, but this person just doesn't make it interesting, right? So it's a perfect storm of everybody firing at all cylinders based on what they're asked to do in this film. What do you, and the other question I have is, and I think you kind of hinted at it before, what do you think about everybody else in this film outside of Nicolas Cage? I think Eva Menez is great. Again, I wish she did more because I've always liked her and stuff. Um, I kind of, the damsel in distress thing is a little bit like, I wish she was a little bit more powerful in that sort of aspect. But then she, you know, she does have this moment of clarity 
with coming clean because she's a you know junkie just like Nicolas Cage is, but she like sees his father who is getting clean and also sees his I guess new girlfriend or wife and she is like a junkie too and is you know sits at home and drinks beer all the time and I think she's like I don't want to be that um, so I need to like really clean myself up so I, I like her arc in this movie um, I kind of wish um, Exhibit was a bigger baddie in this movie I feel like you know I think they call him Big Fate right and I feel like he's not really that intimidating or scary um, the way he kind of like befriends Nicolas Cage is kind of weird um, to the point where it's like, I don't know if a street hustler like this just becomes friend with the cop just because he helps him out. Like to the point where he fully trusts him, which becomes his downfall. I don't know if that turn to friendship happens that quickly or if it even happens at all. Um, You know, you're a drug dealer. You're not, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he feels like Nicholas Cage is corruptible enough to where he could like benefit off of him, which he does until he doesn't. But, you know, I, I kind of wish the, well, and so on, on that, if not to interrupt, but there's two yeah. moments that I think make it believable. The first is when Nicholas Cage approaches him about the offer. And he asks that question about, Hey, what about these murders? And he basically says, look at you now, look at me. And I never did care. Right. And just walks off. Yeah. And then there's another sequence when they're down talking about the condominiums and Hey, this doesn't look like anything now, but wait till we develop it, et cetera. And Nicholas Cage knows that they're pulling this body out of the trunk with weights, et cetera. They're just dropping it off. And Nicholas Cage just acts like it's no big deal as if they were just ordering a pizza or something of that nature. Yeah. So I think he gets to see this character in action in a couple of moments to where he goes, okay, one of two things. He either understands that he's, like you said, so corruptible that he might be able to control him in some fashion or that he's so corruptible that he doesn't have anything else to worry about from this guy, from a police, you know, uh, perspective. It really comes down just to survival of the fittest. And there's even a scene where he's sitting in front of him at the desk and he has that shotgun just aimed at Nicolas Cage. So, you know, he doesn't necessarily trust him 100 percent because he would just as easily blow him away at any point in time that he sees him as a threat. Yeah, I, I mean, I I just guess I wish he was like a stronger villain is all I'm trying to say, I guess. It's just, I don't know. Yeah, Maybe. I I don't know if he, he's, is he a villain though, really? No, I mean, again, there's the question of, you know, what do you do to make things, make ends meet? And like, what do you, you know, I just, I mean, at the end of the day, he is a drug dealer, but are we like... Yeah, but I, I don't I don't think Herzog portrays or sets the characters up in any fashion no, to kind no, of say I, here's I, what's I do, good or bad. Yeah, I, and I like how there's, you know, we're just people and we're just doing what we are doing. And his job is to be a cop, minus to sell drugs, you know, and that's all it is. Um, but to have, like, Nicolas Cage be this strong of a character, I feel like on the other side you need someone just as strong or maybe not just as strong because that's like too much, but just something that, you know, makes me feel like he's ever in danger. And I, even with the gun pointed to him, I knew he was never in danger. Um, I, I would agree. And I think that's intentional. Like, I think the only thing that 
is in danger or is a danger to Nicolas Cage is Nicolas Cage. To me, that's the point of the film. Yeah, okay. That is, that's probably the point of the movie. Yeah, you're right. Because I, I really, when I, when I think about the entire cast, even Exhibit down to Mendez, Brad, Dorif, all of them, Val Kilmer, I think the entire cast is top notch. I think everyone around Cage is in top form. And you could see Herzog is making sure that they give a very specific performance so that Cage has something to play off of it. And I think one of the components that makes Cage's performance so good is that the people around him are feeding him quality acting, quality delivery, just an overall quality performance. And again, I don't know if Nicolas Cage would have been as good without Herzog at the helm, directing everybody in you know a certain fashion, and then saying, "Okay, Nick, this is where you do your thing," whereas everybody else, you know, keep in character, keep it at this level. Nick's going to go to this level, and he knows obviously when when to bring it back down. I think in some of the interviews I saw, the terminology that he would tell Nick is, "Hey, it's time to release the hog," or something <laughs> of that nature. Yeah. And Nick knew, okay, this scene, this is where I'm going to do my thing, versus he would tell him okay you're going to bring it back down to here so obviously is a a director with enough clout and enough experience where someone who might this might be their first film cage is walking all over them but he's obviously couldn't do that on the set with herzog at all oh yeah and you you totally get the sense that here's a director that's orchestrating everything and he's at the top of his form from a narrative standpoint yes visually storytelling performance wise the whole nine yards the the score. What did you think about that? Now we we kind of talked about, you know, this person's other output, which is nothing special. Yeah. I mean, he's no John Williams or anything else of that nature. But what did you think about the score from Mark Isham? You know, you mentioned it, and then, you know, besides like the jazz music and stuff, I don't know if I really nothing stood out to me, and I could just be because maybe I wasn't listening close enough. But if it wasn't the jazz music, I don't know if I remember it. I don't think I picked up on it the first time I watched it. Now, again, I watched it right after we got Randy's email, and it it blew me away. Then sitting down and watching it a second time, being more critical, one of the things I liked about it is the music has this tendency to go from playful to ominous very smoothly. It just okay. has a very unique, uh, unique style to it. And... I don't know, and watching some of the other Herzog films, I really do think he's a good director in terms of trying to pick a score that goes along with the story that he's telling. So if you go back and listen to just any of the movements that take place and some of the sequences that go to, okay, here's Nicolas Cage being crazy, down to some of the dark humor, down to, again, the emotional beats within the film, the music follows that pace and it really accentuates or highlights the scenes that are going on. So what I like about it is it doesn't, I mean, you're talking about this film on paper, and even if, take the score out of it, and you're just watching it, how the heck would you score this thing? You really need something that's going to move in and out of these scenes and not take you away from it and maybe, you know, put the highlight on the performance. But Yeah. And that's what I really appreciate about the score. I think Isham does a great job of moving really the score in between all these sequences and and again going i thought man i'm i'm gonna find all these movies that all of a sudden i love the score to and i'm looking at i'm like oh mechanic resurrect nope don't remember anything but for some reason it stuck out on my second viewing for this one yeah i i I 
I like this movie, but I'm not going to watch it again anytime soon. No offense to the movie. It's just, it's <laughs> not something that I want to have to experience again, especially after watching the other one um, within like two days of watching this one. So, well, it, so the next time I, next time I go back and watch it, I'll, I'll try to listen better for the music. Yeah. I would not say that I, it makes a great evening or double bill. Heck making it a week where you watch bad Lieutenant and then bad Lieutenant port call in the same week. Can be a bit of a downer, a little bit. Yeah. Well, not not necessarily. Before we get to the ending, I do have some questions for you. Okay. So, I know when we were watching The Beast, and a lot of times we watch films. As I'm trying to pick out stuff, all of a sudden I'm writing notes like, "What does Brad think of this?" Because I can't necessarily make heads or tails of it. You're talking so about the iguanas. Before that, the first okay. thing that I wrote down that I think you already talked about, which I said, "Hey, let's punt for later." Why is this set after Katrina? So I thought about that and I was like, well, is it like a socioeconomic sort of thing where you can understand that a group of, because historically, when you go back and look at Katrina, it affected the African-American population disproportionately way more than the whites of New Orleans. So then you're like, okay, so now there's like this gap that was even at one point in time, socioeconomically, was large. Now it's even bigger after Katrina. So we're like, we can believe that the drugs and all that stuff are even worse because people are trying to struggle or trying to, you know, make ends meet to, with the struggle and all this stuff. Like, so, so that was kind of my interpretation is like, okay, we're going to set it after Katrina because we can really get into this, like drugs coming over and, and, and taking over because of, everyone is kind of disenfranchised and the, we're just trying to do anything to make ends meet. But I was like, that's kind of a stretch. And then I was like, they really just, I don't know, did it to do it, I guess, is my best way to kind of come up with it. Is this like, they just did it. Because I, after the first scene, I don't feel like it's ever really a thing. I It's always in the backdrop. There's there's the sequence of some of the scenes where you see what's going on in those neighborhoods as a result of it. Yeah. Through the rebuilding, etc. Yeah. Now, it's not in your face, but I still but think like, it's there. But like, even like... So those homes that they go to and so like they would be if it was that soon after Katrina, like it would be a like a I don't know. I don't know if it would look that way. I just I don't I don't know. I don't know if I believe that it would not be like you would you would see like where the water came up, like on walls and stuff like that. You would have that mark, you know, where here was the flood water and now it's gone. But we have the evidence of where it was. Things like that. I just, none of that to me kind of stood out like, oh, you can tell at one point in time this house was underwater or, you know, whatever. Have, have you been to New Orleans? I have not. I got to go last year and it was February ish. And Baltimore got shut down, so I actually got to stay an extra day. And it's one of my favorite cities now after only being there for a couple of days. And, and I got to hit some of the major things um, while I was doing work. Only seeing six films of Werner Herzog, so keep that in mind. I can't imagine that he would choose New Orleans and specifically call out Katrina and start the film that he way that he did, unless he was trying to say something. I mean, yeah, this I know. is a, he's like a documentary director, and I, I know. I just, yeah, okay. The, the here was my interpretation. I don't know what you think of this. So the only thing I can think of is that he's talking about you know Katrina came out of, for the most part, just nowhere. It, it ravished the city, totally tore it down. Mm-hmm. 
And through the aftermath, you have everybody going through just these horrible times and trying just to get back to square one, right? And I feel like setting it in that time, in that place, in that city, and everything that's going on, Nicolas Cage then sort of embodies that city through his performance. So if you think of Nicolas Cage of where he started and then where he ends up at the end of the film, and I'm not saying, and we'll talk about you know the ending, whether it's good, bad, happy, sad, whatever it is, but if Nicolas Cage is representative of the city, you're watching him being torn down for the film and then him trying to build himself back up to something at the end of it. Now, it's not where he started at the beginning yeah. of the film. It's in a different place. And I feel like that could be one of the things that helps that performance a little bit is by saying, okay, I'm in a city that is going through this transition in the aftermath and what that city is going through. Either it symbolizes what Nicolas Cage is going through as a character or highlights sort of the story arc of Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I just, I don't know. It doesn't seem distinctly New Orleans or distinctly right after Katrina if you just kind of look at it on the surface. I don't think. I, yeah, I don't think it highlights the New Orleans culture or the city in and of itself. I mean, I, yeah. I don't watch this film and feel like I get that New Orleans vibe the way you might with Woody Allen when you get a Manhattan vibe or something yeah. of that. I mean, even you in, feel New York. Like, the city the is 90, a character. Even in the 92 one, you know it's New York. Yeah, it feels New yes. York. Yes. This one, I think, feels New Orleans, obviously, in the beginning. And again, on the second viewing, being so close, I feel like I'm paying closer attention to it. It's all there. And after being in New Orleans, I'm like, yeah, that looks like some of the parts that I had seen. Um, and <laughs> didn't see the neighborhoods that you know they went to but it still had that aesthetic feel and stuff to it yeah i mean i'm not looking for everyone to be like eating gumbo and doing voodoo and stuff like that but you know i'm just like <laughs> yeah no i get make it. it do something so the other question i had and this is the one that stumped me what do all the animals mean in this film so there are so many call outs to specific animals you it, it opens with a snake in the water uh-huh so I know Herzog and his documentaries, and everything else, that's got to mean something. The devil. You, the devil? Mm-hmm. You know that. I'm just, I, that was mine. I mean. It was the devil? Yes. Okay. I mean, bibli- I mean, biblically, it's the devil and, you know, the 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 flood, the snake in the water, you know, that's like the devil. How easily through. it moves through the chaos and everything. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. That Got that. You get a fish in the glass at the murder scene, and then he's reading the poetry to it. Yeah, I don't know about that one. That I almost like, feel like that's Nicolas Cage reading that and just kind of almost feeling like he's as stifled or, um, I, I don't know, he feels the constraints and everything that this fish in this little bowl That was like. kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, then you get the dying alligator in the road that leads to the alligator POV shot, which Herzog shot that as well. Yeah, that's... So I wondered, like... <laughs> I don't know, because the alligator in the road is still not dead yet because his little leg is still moving. And I'm like, oh, this is not great. But I, I have no idea what it means. I mean, then it moves over to this weird POV. Man, I wish I wish I was smart enough to know, but I have no idea. Literally, it, it, was, it was interesting because all of a sudden you're seeing him trying to interact to get this ticket waived for Brad Dorif so that, you know, he can help out that character. He then... You get no. He's trying to get it waived for his 
bookie, right? Or his bookie, yeah. Yeah. And then you get um, the introduction of Fruza Balk within yeah, that character from the Heidi. craft, and yeah, she's Bobby Boucher's girlfriend. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, you get this alligator who's watching another alligator that just got hit by a car and is dead on the road, and you're seeing him watch everything that's transpire and then run away. Well, yeah, he could have crossed that road too, right? So he saw someone do something that he could have done didn't work out for them. So he turns around and, and goes the other way. So he learned it. I, okay. I, yeah. I please somebody write in and tell me what the hell that, that, but it feels Herzog, right? It oh, feels very like a Herzog much. film. Like All of a sudden it was like, wow, I'm watching a, a yes. Werner Herzog film. Then when it really kicks in is the iguanas on the coffee table. So the alligator, you start to get a hint of, okay, I'm, I'm in a Herzog film. Then as soon as the iguanas show up and you get this whole sequence of this music playing over these close-up shots, the iguana, Nicholas Cage, look at the iguana. Are the iguanas actually there? Yeah. I mean, everybody doesn't know what he's talking about. And then you get iguanas again at the shootout with also the sequence that leads into, Hey, his soul is still dancing. Shoot him again. So that whole sequence feels like a Werner Herzog. And again, I'm not sure what the alligator, the iguanas, and even the soul dancing means outside of is this representative of what Nicolas Cage is seeing as a result of like heightened paranoia perception. That's kind of what I thought. Like he was his paranoia at some point in time was getting to him. And I don't know. Cause I, I, I initially thought the iguanas or not still think the iguanas were never there. They were just in his mind. Right. Um, but that's got to mean something. Yeah. Yeah. I was Googling I know, animals I tried, and I bad tried lieutenant well, iguanas. Nothing. Nothing. I couldn't. And it's one of those where I don't know how you feel about it. For me, I think it works. It's fine. It adds that Herzog touch it's to it. It's just weird. It's weird. And given the context of when they show up, the alligator thing I think is trying to say something. I don't know what it gets. It bothers me a little bit. When I get to the iguanas and the soul dancing, etc., I totally buy into it because that's Nicolas Cage just tripping, right? Yeah, yeah. So it makes total concept, um, context of the story that's going on at that point, but I don't understand the alligator thing. And you also get him watching a bullfight on the television at some point, um, and then the ending in the aquarium, because I think one of one of the things he asked the guy at the end is, you know, do, do fish dream or something yeah, like that? Yeah, do fish dream. Do there's animals all over the do, do android fish dream of electric sheep? Yeah. Well, so the talking about the aquarium leads us into what you tried to bring up like three or four times, which is the ending of the film. Which I hate. You hate the ending? Okay. So everything. All right. Here's what. And I don't know why my mind does this, but I always go when this happened in this movie, I was like, I thought of Wayne's World. Let's do the happy ending. Where they, you know, do 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 do, and then they do the happy ending. All of a sudden, this movie, this dark movie, everything starts to break for Nicolas Cage's character, and it just works out fine. You know, he, the crack pipe, he, you know, magically got the guy to smoke crack. Hey, why don't you go look, see if you can find this crack pipe that, you know, there's crack pipe there now. Uh, You know, everything just breaks for him, and you're like, this guy does not deserve. This sort of ending, I, I don't know, man. Like it just, it, it just turns to this happy ending, and I'm like, where's this coming from? Like I almost thought I misremembered. It was like, oh, at some point in time, like he snaps out of it because 
there's a moment where I, th- I think, I mean, maybe I could be wrong, that something happens and it turns out, no, that was just his mind. And then I thought, oh, he's going to like snap out of it and realize he's in jail or something. And he just kind of, the last little bit he, you know, thought of trying to. You're like, looking for the fake happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. It, I just think it's jarring and not what this movie was building to. Um, and I'm not even trying to compare it to 92's version because I know how that one ends and the guys suffer two different fates. Um, it just, you know, I feel like it's unearned and maybe that's just me, but I, I don't like the way this movie ends at all. And it kind of left a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth. Um, if you want to be honest, cause it just, it, I don't know, man, to have it just make this weird, like 180, and then everything break for this guy just felt wrong. I love the ending. <laughs> Absolutely love this ending. Now, Maybe why I love the ending is when you start watching a Herzog film and maybe the first one you do is even door started small and you get to that ending and you go through that experience and then you get to bad Lieutenant. I I feel like if he made bad Lieutenant back in the seventies, you would have got the ending probably even worse than what you were expecting. It would have put the 92 version or whatever year bad Lieutenant came out. The first one with Harvey Keitel to that would have looked like a Disney film. (laughs) <laughs> if, if Herzog were doing this film back in the 70s, I think. But you're right. Everything, everything just works out, right? So he gets info that the complaints against him are being dropped because the guys that were trying to muscle in on him and Frankie end up getting shot by Exhibit and his gang. He wins big on his bet. So Brad Dorf comes back and says, oh, by the way, you paid back your debt and then you placed this other bet. And it the bookie. Hit. Yeah, the bookie. The murderer goes to jail. Now, he sets that murderer up, so he, in essence, doesn't solve the case through traditional witnesses and everything else. He actually has to plant evidence in order to make that happen, right? Yeah, which is bad. And he found a spoon. So he goes through this whole thing about losing the spoon, et cetera, and as Frankie is going through recovery, he goes out to the shed, finds the spoon, gives it to her. So all of these plot devices or stories that are happening throughout the entire film and it's all leading to what looks like a very bad ending for Terrence ends up turning and he ends up with another award and a promotion a captain Frankie's pregnant everybody's sober you start to get closure and next thing you know he goes out does the parking lot thing again gets more drugs and is sitting at a hotel and then the person that saves him is the individual that he jumped into the water and saved at the beginning of the film and then he takes Nicolas Cage to the aquarium and they're sitting there and having a moment I read it completely different so the guy comes in says he's been sober for a year and then cut to them like having this long stare at these fish. I'm like, oh, Nicholas Sage got that guy high. Got him high? No. Yeah. No. No. I, that's that's how because like the stare and all this stuff, I'm like, oh yeah. They're not I read it completely different. I read it as that Nicholas Cage spoiled this guy's sobriety. I don't think so at all. Cause the guy the way that scene ends, he goes, I'm off work. I'm gonna go finish. I'm gonna come get you out of here. Because he asks about the fish dreaming and he goes, 
you stay here. I'm going to go finish. I'm going to I'm going to get you out of here. And he gets them out of there and where they go is the aquarium. They didn't get at least in my interpretation of the film, they didn't get go go get high. I I really think it becomes a bit more of a life affirming film at the end in terms of think about it from a character standpoint. And I think that's another reason why Katrina is a part of this film or why it's set up that way. I mean, here's a hurricane that comes through and wipes out everything for no reason. There is no reason for that hurricane to happen. That city didn't do anything wrong. It just happens. It's part of nature, right? Yeah. So I'll give you two interpretations. You can look at this one way and say, what you put out there is what you're going to get back. And where Nicholas Cage starts as an individual in the story, he's a corrupt cop who's taking advantage of everything. And he does this one thing, this one good thing of jumping in the water to save that guy. And he ends up getting hurt and he goes through all of this crap for, for doing the one good thing. If he didn't jump in there, it'd be an entirely different film. He wouldn't be hooked on drugs. He wouldn't have the back pain. He wouldn't do all that other stuff. Well, you you don't know that he wouldn't be hooked on drugs. His father was an addict too. Sure, but the way this plays out is the reason why he gets hooked on drugs is he's taking the Oxycontin and that leads to the other stuff. So you have to infer from the narrative that the reason why he ends up taking more and more drugs is simply because he becomes addicted to it as a result of the prescription that he's been given. It's the way he deals with things. But you're right. He, he could be a corrupt cop and he could be doing drugs, etc. But I don't get that from that character who walks in at the beginning, who's calm, cool, collective, corrupt, right? You get drug addict Nicolas Cage and everything else as a result of going through the back injury and the pain and everything else. And frankly, the <laughs> it doesn't fit the act of saving that guy. Everything that happened to him shouldn't have happened to him for trying to do the one good thing when you know leading up to that he was just a shitbag. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I feel like this <laughs> this film is basically saying there is going to be a redemptive arc. You got to get through there. It's not going to be you do your one good deed and everything is sunshine and roses afterwards. You do your one good deed and sometimes you have to get through the karma of it all, of the stuff that you – I mean – all of that stuff happening to him is probably payback for the things that led up to that one good deed, right? So he still has to pay the piper on all of his acts before then, before he gets a break. And I feel like everything working out is the universe coming back and paying him back for that one good deed, if you believe in karma. He did ruin his underwear for that guy, Troy. Yeah, $55 underwear. That's some expensive underwear. Now, I think you can also look at this film and go, everything works out, and this falls in his lap. You don't have control over anything. And that could be kind of a bummer. But I don't think the movie's trying to say that. I think it kind of comes down to, it's not a one-to... Well, I take that back. At the end of the day, I think it is a one-to-one equation. Just because you do one good deed doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're on easy street. You have to pay for the sins that led up to that deed. But at some point, it's going to come back around for you. And if you take advantage of it, then you end up in a good spot. Well, I mean, the, the what's the last thing that happens in this movie? Do you remember? They're watching the aquarium. The very last thing is Nicolas Cage kind of laughs. Yeah. To me, it's like he, a corrupt cop laughing at the end of a movie is like, hey, I got away with it. I, I don't think it's a... I, I think at that point, he's at a redemptive arc. 
Yeah, you would be because you didn't read it this way I did. I mean, I've, no, I've I no, I agree, yeah. but I no, think yeah, all the I mean, scenes leading up to that. He, the only thing once you get to everything working out, and I think you get to the spoon scene and everything. To me, it's the spoon scene that makes it. When he finds his treasure and he is watching everybody else on the road to recovery, and he finds that spoon, gives it to her. I feel like that's him trying, and to go down that path, and all four of them cleaned up at his award ceremony. And he's got this one moment where he's going to go down that path again and take the drugs. And he's going to go right back to square one. And at that crucial moment, the guy that he saved walked in to that room, pure serendipity. And that's the cosmos coming back and saying, all right, it's time to help you out. It's time for you to be saved. Yeah. I think that's what the film is saying. (laughs) I think all the animals have something to do with that. I, I don't know. I think that's what Katrina. I, there's got it. Herzog doesn't do anything unintentionally. So I think the Katrina thing. I think all these animals. The alligator probably has something to do with this too. But I have to believe, and this is why I really love the film. I love the film, and I love the film because of that ending. I think it has some message in there that is talking about like the mechanics of how the world, the cosmos, karma, everything else works. And you get this fantastic nuanced performance of Cage going through it all, all the way from crazy chaos to the redemptive stuff. You see, you're a half full guy and I'm a half empty guy. There you I go. I guess so. This is a nice Rorschach test for us, right? I know. It's weird how, like, <laughs> you completely read it as a happy ending and I completely was like, no, at the very end, he ruins this guy. But I mean, we both, could, I mean, I think we're both right. Possibly. Well, it's weird because I could totally see it through your lens. If I were looking at it, I think through 70s Herzog, because even Wrath of God, that has such a bleak ending where, you know, full spoiler here, folks, if you haven't seen it, Kinski is the only one alive. His daughter's been, you know, shot with an arrow. Um, everybody's dead. Every, and he's just going down in circles on this raft. It is a bleak, bleak film. And even dwarves start small has a bleak ending. I mean, it, it, so I, I can't believe you let your wife watch that movie. <laughs> well, I, again, I'm, I'm in timeout this year for picking any films, but in, in my defense, it, it's her fault because she could have left at any point in time. So she, she knew that. And I didn't know what I, and it kind of is your fault, Brad, because when you text me right before and says, have, do you know anything about that film? And I say, no, and you don't text anything back that actually I blame all this on you. Yeah, it's all my fault. Yeah. Can we talk about the 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 92 real quick? Yeah, absolutely. What uh comparatively, how do you think that one holds up now? Do you do you think it's better than this one or like, no, what No, I don't think it's better at all. It's way more dark and it's less Kaitel is so gone in that movie that it's he's almost hard to like um i mean not that i really like nicholas cage in this movie like as a character yeah like we're not hanging out but like kaitel's character is pretty tough to to get behind and the subject matter of that one like protocol you know the 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 scene is you know murder obviously it's gruesome but it's not the raping of a nun with a crucifix, like all that stuff is really tough. Um, I don't know. I, it's hard because like I saw that 
one, you know, back in the day, and it's kind of stuck with me. I don't know which one I like better. They're they are different enough. Like the baseball aspect of it, I like because you know I, I played baseball for a long time. So hearing him talk about the Mets and the Dodgers um, and playing for the league championship is interesting. But I don't know. It's it's difficult to to kind of compare them because they are a little bit different and a little bit similar. But I I don't know. I don't know which one I like better. It's hard for me to kind of judge them they're, separately. They're interesting to watch. Not I don't wouldn't recommend anybody watch them back to back, but yeah. to watch them close to each other, it is very interesting to take the same type of content, subject matter, even story. I mean, this is really a depraved cop who is going th- just through the gutter and trying to take down as many people with them as possible. Kaitel takes it an entirely different direction in his performance versus Cage. And you cannot dispute, uh, they're both amazing performances. And Abel versus Werner have an entirely different vision of the world at that time. I almost feel like Bad Lieutenant might have been Werner's interpretation 30 years ago. Yeah. And. Harvey Keitel gets shot at the end. Let's just go ahead and say that to make sure people know. Yeah, one, one is a bleak ending. I think yeah. the other one, in in my opinion, has a much more positive ending. The thing that... They're, they're two thematically different things. I think Port of Call, while I like it a little bit more, there's more stuff going on where I think the majority of what Bad Lieutenant about is about is forgiveness through one of the most horrendous acts and it is almost i don't i don't know it it's almost a dissection of religion and christianity yeah well and even even the Harvey Keitel character lets the guys go yeah Which, after after her telling him why she forgave them yes and yes. then you get this whole sequence where he has a vision so he was like unable to kind of make peace with everything because it was taken from him, which I find interesting. Right. It, so. It's it's a it's a great film. Great. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's an important movie. I think I think Abel's film is important. It is a hard watch. I think if you're interested in independent film, if you're interested in in just performances that are going to take you to the edge, you got to watch Bad Lieutenant. I think you'll watch it once and go, I'm done. I don't necessarily want to revisit it. Whereas Port of Call, I could see myself watching it again at some point. And I'm not saying Port of Call is a fun film. I just get visually more out of it. If, if you're talking directors, I like Werner over Abel. Oh, yes. Yeah, no question. Just, uh, just, But I haven't, I've probably seen six films on each side. Well, and, and I think, and I don't think there's any argument. I think 92 is much more straightforward. Yes. Absolutely. It's it's except for the back surf- end. The back end gets a little yeah. metaphysical a little bit. Yeah, but it's more surface level than than Portocall is, I think by far. So, I, you know, we I think you and I can debate the ending of Portocall till we turn blue in the face. We're not doing that for the end of of the original, so. And, and that's why I think that's a better film. Like yeah, I yeah. like those I like those films where you can have a more deeper discussion, and I'm not saying Abel's film is one that you can't dissect and have a very intelligent conversation about. I think there's a lot going on there and a lot to say. I just don't know if it's as nuanced as what Werner 
is bringing to the table. So they're both great from a film experience in terms of dramatic elements. I personally find more to appreciate in Portocol than I do Bad Lieutenant. Okay. But I'm, gl- I'm glad I watched it again. <laughs> I mean, it's weird to say because I'm yeah. like, that was that was such a rough, rough viewing. And that's one that I'm glad that the family didn't come down and go, hey, what are you watching? And be like, yeah. nope, you're, no, mm-hmm. uh-uh, nope. Yeah. Not yeah. particularly, <laughs> you know, let, I'll show you in 20, 30, I don't know. <laughs> My wife will never watch it. So, time for the question? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, Brad, your pick, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. This is Randy's pick. Randy recommended this one, so we wanted to to use this for – Listener Appreciation Month, I guess, but um, or Listener Pick Month. But is Bad Lieutenant a bomb? Um, it is not a bomb. Um, now, again, I'm not going to go out and recommend this to anybody. And I don't know how thrilled I am with kind of the happy portion of the ending where everything just kind of works out. But um, for kind of the, the cast alone, mainly Nicolas Cage, um, this is definitely worth watching. If you feel like, yeah, I can sit through a guy doing all these things and 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 it, you feel okay with that, then I definitely think you should watch it and kind of appreciate probably, I mean, no one's going to argue this is not a top three Nicolas Cage performance. Like it's either one, two or three. I would, I would say so. It's, it's pretty definitive. So on that fact alone, I think it's not a bomb. I, I mean... I kind of wish this did better because, you know, getting another kind of type of this movie would be fun. But I don't think we'll ever see something called Bad Lieutenant again, especially in times like these, Troy. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're not, police we're not corruption nope. is not uh, not very fun. So, um, yeah, it's not a bomb. I, I agree 100%. Of, of the six <laughs> Werner Herzog films I've watched, this is my favorite. Now, full disclosure... Of the 73, like you said, I, I'm not going to go back and watch all 73. I'll finish that Shout Factory box set. Um, there's a couple that I will go and seek out that aren't included within that. But this was just another reason outside of the other ones that I watched, minus the the Dwarves one, where I find him just a very fascinating director. I love the fact that he's choosing topics that interest him first and foremost, and if it draws his attention, and if those are sort of knocking on his brain saying, hey, you need to tell this story, that's how he's choosing his content and what he needs to do. And I, I love everything about this film. I was surprised watching it so close to seeing it for the first time uh, back in November. So it's, I mean, heck, it's probably about three months since I watched it for the first time. Yeah. On my second viewing, I, I really enjoyed it more. So I like you am not flat out recommending this to just John Smith off the street. You got to like cinema. You got to know what you're getting into. And you know, it's, if you're, if you're dipping your toes into Werner Herzog, I think this is a good start. I mean, what do you think? Yeah. Um, I was trying to think like, do I like him more as a director or more as like an actor? Cause I've seen more of stuff like he's acted in, I think, but no, this is probably his most, accessible narrative <laughs> which well, outside know, of rescue dawn i mean rescue dawn was great yeah yeah so maybe rescue dawn and then this um yeah yeah if, the, if you're starting if you're trying to find something mainstream 
to start with, you know, and Rescued see if you like this. it. Yeah. Then go to the others. Yeah, yeah, but and then and then definitely look up some of his documentaries. His documentaries are top notch. So yeah, Grizzly, Grizzly Man is amazing. I'm really really excited about getting into. They have so many of the uh, documentaries within that box set. So I'm, I have my favorite fiend was the only one I watched. It was really good. But what was amazing was uh, all the stories about Klaus Kinski and you hear all these comparisons between Herzog and Kinski and the very volatile relationship. Yeah. That documentary does a really good job of highlighting it. But the other thing that documentary did was it made me immediately want to go back and watch everything that they did together from a partnership. So I'd already seen Nosferatu. So I I watched wrath of God. And to, to kind of put a bow on, Ferrara and I believe Herzog have kind of made peace with each other after the release of this film. They've talked and I think they're good with, you know, once Ferrara saw the movie that was actually made, I think they kind of squashed their beef. So, yeah, I, I think so. So next week is my pick of listener request, right? It is. Yeah. So interesting. We had, Josh, our good friend from the VHS Files podcast, this month they were doing a John Carpenter film, The Thing, which I think just released this week. Yeah, on Friday. Yeah, so Josh was giving us some recommendations and Carpenter came up and I thought this would be a good, I don't know, a good way to maybe cross promote his podcast with ours. So I asked Josh, I said, okay, of the John Carpenter bombs, which one do you want to talk about? And so he picked, which I have not seen in years, and it's 1992's Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah. Yeah, this will be my first time. Oh, you've never seen this? I've never seen this movie, Um, which is weird because Carpenter is, I mean, I think people of our age, you know, you have... Halloween, you have The Thing, and you have Big Trouble in Old China, and like you hold those three films in like the highest of regards, right? Yeah, and the and two The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China are both box office. But we will get to them. Yes, we're uh, saving I, those for kind of milestone episodes. So, but yes, yeah, so so Carpenter is an important director, and I've seen a lot of his stuff, but for some reason, Memoirs has always been kind of something I've missed. I, I will admit. You know, I, I like Chevy Chase quite a bit. I'm not the biggest fan in the world, so I think that might have played into it. It's like, yes, I like Christmas Vacation. I like Fletch. But outside of that, I'm not a huge Chevy Chase guy. So, Okay. I, I What's funny is Carpenter is one of the few directors I think I've seen everything he's ever put out from a director and writing standpoint. So it'll be a really good discussion. And like you said... I think for you and I, especially the the type of films that we like and the type of films that we watch over and over again, he's just one of those directors that's always going to be a top director. And Big Trouble in Little China, I mean, full disclosure, it's it's one of the best movie. It's top three, top five films of all time, in my opinion. Yeah. So we're, we're saving that one, and we'll get to the thing as well. But if you want to hear some really good discussion of the thing, Head over this week to the VHS Files podcast. Uh, I'm going to be listening to that one tomorrow because I just finished up some others. Another podcast that I kind of want to push out there because I was, it's, 
it's the podcast I've been listening to for years. I think it's one of the first movie podcasts that I had ever listened to. And it's the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. So there's a great team over there that is talking about all types of films um, from a lot of mainstream stuff to Italian cinema, horror, you name it, whatever genre is out there, they are going to cover it. And you have some great hosts um, between Will Sammy and I think uh, Todd is the other one. Could be wrong on that. I'll probably get it wrong. So uh, here's the thing about Gentleman's Guide. I'm so far behind and they put so many episodes out, I tend to go back and listen to the films that I either don't know about or like, but there's so much content out there. And Will and Sammy were the ones that originally put it out there. Um, Brad, I think you've met both yeah. of them through yep. Whorehound as well. Yep. But go listen to Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Okay. Brad, how do people get a hold of us? Well, I, I did want to mention oh. that... Um, over the past little, I think 2021 for us has been kind of surreal because all of a sudden, like our podcast has kind of grown like exponentially to the point where it's almost laughable <laughs> to you and I. Um, so I thank everyone who's been listening and sharing and um, because, you know, you don't grow, you don't grow without people kind of passing you around. So I just want to say thank you for people for reaching out. We've had a lot of people you know, just say, Hey, good job guys. You know, and it, it's nice that, you know, Troy and I are actually have a little bit of an audience and people will correct us when we say stupid stuff or they'll say, Hey, you know, great episode. So thanks for everybody for doing that. Um, if you want to reach out to us, it's reach out, uh, make a suggestion, uh, comment. It's, uh, not a bomb pod at gmail.com. Uh, look for us on Twitter, not a bomb pod. Um, Instagram, all those places you can find us, um, interact with us. Troy has been doing a pretty good job social media wise. I've been trying to do my part too. So, you know, we're trying, we're, we're two old men trying to play with our, trying to figure out how social media works. And it's, uh, sometimes social media sucks. You know, you, you look on things and it's just a hellscape, but other times it's nice when people are reaching out and saying, Hey, thanks for doing this or Nick emailing us back and saying, Hey, thanks for doing my recommendation. I love, you know, your conversation or whatever. So, you know, yeah, it's been and nice. Nick also went a step further and listened to the podcast and a couple of questions we had about the film gave us some great articles yeah. that I believe I posted on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's the kind stuff of explaining that, why, you know, Americans played Russians in that movie and stuff like that. So, yeah. And I'm, I don't want to like call out John or Kevin, um, you know what would have been nice outside of telling us we were wrong about the whole Air Force Navy thing is explain it to us so that we can learn. But no, you didn't. You just yelled yeah. at us. But that's no. okay. And I just looked it up because I was listening to the latest ep episode with Cruel Jaws and Deep Star Six. It is Todd. So okay. sorry, Todd, that I didn't remember your name off the top of my head, but I knew Will and Sammy longer. But I don't know what... Anyways, I'm make I'm digging a bigger hole. I think so. I, just I know Josh made the recommendation. Are we going to have a guest next week, Troy? I believe we are. I okay. actually reached out to Josh and said, since this is your recommendation, do you want to come on and talk about memoirs of an invisible man? He said, absolutely. So we will have a guest next week, and Josh is going to be joining us talking about all things Chevy Chase. Yay! <laughs> it, it'll be it'll be a fun dialogue. So, well, what else, Brad? I feel like we covered a lot again tonight. Yeah, yeah, man. We're, you know, when we first started this, I was always like, yeah, we're going to, you know, 
60 minute podcast. It'll be 60 <laughs> minutes. And now it's like 60 minutes before we even start talking about the damn movie. So, you know, and Troy, I appreciate, you know, getting to talk to you every Sunday to escape a lot of what's going on in the world and just using this as a, as an escapism project is really nice, but you know, talking to the, with you throughout the week kind of, you know, helps at the end of the week. I have this book in like, okay, get to talk to Troy about a movie for two hours. So, you know, makes life fun. And that's what I need. I agree. hundred percent. This, this is the, this is the time I look forward to because like you said, well, man, I'm, I'm learning so much. If you had, if we had not done this, I would not have gone out and watched more Werner Herzog films. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm buying more movies now and definitely watching more because I, you know, I have little kids and, you know, you kind of have to make time for special things. And, you know, I'm making times for movies again when I otherwise would not have. So that's helped a lot. So kind of rekindling that fire that I had for movies a long time ago is really nice. So. I mean, yeah, I mean, this no, podcast I, has helped. I, I like the people interact with us. So every every time we put something out, I feel like we're getting something back in terms of information. And I, I like the fact that we have Josh and Sammy from GGTMC reached out to us and gave us a compliment. And we're, we're starting to build up a little bit more of a network that we can start bringing people from other shows on so that you can learn about that. And hopefully we can add a couple of more shows to your iPod or your Google account, however you listen to, to podcasts in general. Yeah, but exactly. um, we, we've got a lot of people actually that have reached out to us either through recommendations or even asked if they could be on the show. We gladly said yes. So I want to say probably between now and a lot of February, you're, we're going to have a third person on with us just simply because everybody has thought of these great recommendations or have taken a different spin on the film that we have brought up and said, hey, does anybody know about this thing? And I'm surprised how many people are, are just experts on one particular <laughs> film. So of the films coming up, probably in the next four weeks, I'm super excited because some of the people that are coming onto the show to talk about them, we're talking about movies directly in their wheelhouse. And you and I may have to take a back seat and just <laughs> hand the mic over to them and go, just just do a brain dump right now. Next, next week will be fun, too, because I won't have to do research on the Afghan war or drug addiction or anything else. Really, it's just about John Carpenter and Chevy Chase. Yeah. Fighting. Which, you know, I'm, <laughs> it took us, what, this will be our 32nd episode. So, like, you know, it took us a long time to finally get to Carpenter. So I'm excited to, to get into something. And it's not the thing. And it's not Big Trouble in Little China. We'll get there. We'll get there. But we'll get there. We're saving those. Yes, and if there's anything that you think we need to push to the front of the line, as always, reach out on email, reach out on the Twitter accounts or any of the social media, and give us your recommendation. If you like what you hear, please, like Brad said, leave some type of review for us. We do this not because of the numbers, but we do it to meet people. Yeah. So we we like to find other film fans and, and exchange ideas. So anything else? No, man. All right. It's good well, talking to you. I'm I'm not going to exit with a uh I don't know, a Werner Herzog impersonation. I'm still kinda of bewildered at the beginning, so <laughs> All right. well listen folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. I hope you're having an awesome day. Thank you so much for listening. We are excited every week to bring this to you. 
and next week we are going to be talking if you're playing along just again 1992's memoirs of an invisible man check it out and we'll see you next week Al Peterson.